Our scripture this evening, once again, comes from the book of Acts. The book of Acts, we'll begin reading in chapter 22, <clears throat> just a couple of verses there, chapter 22, and then read through uh, chapter 23. Acts chapter 22, beginning at verse 30 and through the end of chapter 23. Let's pay heed as God speaks to us in his word to us this evening. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by him said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it's written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees, Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. And the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. 
and now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea to the third hour, <clears throat> at the third hour of the night. Also provide, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when he was and when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, and they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he said that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive, and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you looking into your word, and we ask that you will guide us as we examine this word. And we pray not only, our Father in heaven, that you will guide us as we look at it, but that you will also help us, not only to understand, but to internalize the things that you have for us, that they might become a part of us so that we can serve you better. And so guide us in our study, we pray, for Jesus' sake. And together we say, Amen. <clears throat> it was over 40 years ago when I think I had a an experience somewhat similar to the experience that the Apostle Paul is recorded as having in this text. My situation was a little bit different than the Apostle Paul's. I was defending, not myself, but my dissertation. And in the midst of my dissertation defense, one of the participants in the defense asked the question about just what kind of arguments a committed theist could make. Another member of the uh, uh, examiners didn't like the point that was trying to be made at that time, and so they got into a squabble. And uh, they, it, it got quite heated as they were going back and forth and back and forth. And uh, the chairman had some difficulty finally getting everybody back to find out whether I was going to pass my defense and that my dissertation would be acceptable. Uh, the interesting thing to me, though, is in all of this, uh, I was the one who was under the microscope, but my opinion was worth nothing. Uh, they, they had already made up their minds, the two, two protagonists in particular. Now, there are great differences, I'll grant you that, uh, that uh, Paul was doing more than defending a piece of academic work. I mean, he was defending his life against uh, 
false charges, uh, false claims that some Jews from Asia had made about him. And they accused Paul of bringing Gentiles into the inner courts of the, of the temple. And uh, Paul hadn't done this. He, he, was, he was innocent of this charge. And uh, Paul, after two vicious attacks, uh, one first of all in the temple, and then another one on the steps going into the fortress Antonia uh, by the Jews. Uh, he, he is now uh, brought, uh, rescued by the Roman soldiers, and now he's brought before uh, the uh, Sanhedrin. And the Romans are here trying, the Roman Tribune is here trying to figure out What's going on? Why did, why did all this uh, uh, uproar start? So let's, let's look at this passage and let's see how Paul defends himself and then let's see other things that fall out as a result of it. As I mentioned, Paul is before the Sanhedrin and defending, defending himself after being attacked twice by a mob. Uh, the, the Roman uh, in command at the garrison of the fortress Antonia uh, wanted to know why, why, why did all this happen? Uh, we talked the last time. Much of might have gone on. The, the, the tribune, the leader, the commander may not have been able to understand Hebrew. And so a lot of what was going on was going on in a foreign language. So he could have been thoroughly confused with all this. And so he wants to get to the bottom of it. In order to do so, he orders the Sanhedrin to, to meet and the Sanhedrin was the highest court in Judaism at that time. At one time, the Sanhedrin had some uh, religious, certainly, uh, authority. It also had some political authority. At this point, it's probably unlikely that the Sanhedrin had very much political authority. It had become pretty much a, a religious institution. Now, the... Uh, the Sanhedrin had been dominated by Sadducees. Sadducees were probably mostly aristocrats, many of them having some blood relationship with the priests. But in recent times, in terms of this incident here, members of the, of the, of the group called the Pharisees had become a part of the Sanhedrin. And these two groups were quite different. And we've seen, uh, for example, earlier uh, in Acts that uh, Gamaliel was a, was a Pharisee, but he was also a member of the council, a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, um, I believe that it's inappropriate to call this meeting of the Sanhedrin a trial. Now, perhaps we could look at it more as parallel something like we have with a, what we have sometimes are investigative grand juries. They can bring people in and ask them questions. It seems to me that's probably what's going on. There's some question as to whether a Roman commander would have the authority to order a, a uh, official meeting of the Sanhedrin. But nonetheless, uh, we have this meeting and it takes place the next day after the riot. And the meeting is supposed to help uh, the uh, tribune, the commander, figure out what's going on. And Luke tells us, as he records this, uh, that Paul began his defense by claiming, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, Paul most likely is not just saying that he's lived his life after he became a Christian in that way, but he's talking about his entire life, his entire life that he has lived it in a way that he can say that he has lived it with a good conscience. And what Paul, it seems to me, is trying to get across here to the Sanhedrin as he speaks to them is that his following of the law was something that was important to him. It was something that was central to the Apostle Paul. 
And the Apostle Paul looked at his Judaism as a way in which he was following the law. But the Apostle Paul also sees now that his embrace of Jesus Christ and following Christianity is a necessary conclusion to what he understood about what it meant to be a Jew. So Paul doesn't see himself as having some kind of way become a non-Jew, something other than a Jew. In fact, he says, in good conscience, I can tell you I lived as a Jew and I live as a Jew even now as a Christian. Now, don't get the wrong idea here. Paul's not denying that, that something dramatic happened to him on the road to Damascus. As a matter of fact, if you remember back when we looked at his uh, um, defense of himself uh, in the temple, he points this out. He points it out very clearly. And we'll see here, he may have even uh, pointed it out in this. Uh, dis- we'll, he'll have pointed it out again in the discussion that he's having and his defense here with the members of the Sanhedrin. But the Apostle Paul is pointing them to this. He says, it's necessary for me as a Jew to tell you I have a good conscience even though I stand before you accused of being a Christian because a necessary part of being a Jew is to believe in the Messiah. The Messiah has come and that Messiah is the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is, is, is not just making some innocuous statement saying, brothers, I haven't done anything wrong. It seems to me he's making a much greater statement about talking about living with a good conscience his entire life. So that's what he's talking about here. Now, we may think that this wasn't a big deal to make this kind of a statement, but notice what Ananias, the high priest, does. Ananias, the high priest, tells somebody who's standing next to Paul to slap him on the face, you know, to shut his mouth. Now, uh, uh, this is not just you know, a snip by the high priest that he didn't like Paul and he didn't like what Paul had to say. And it fits in, though, with what we know about Ananias. Think something bad about somebody and that probably characterizes Ananias. That's the kind of reputation that he had. But Paul, when, 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 when the, the high priest tells someone near to Paul, Uh, to strike him on the mouth, but Paul turns to the high priest and he says, what are you doing judging me and having me struck before any decision about my guilt or innocence has been made? And no doubt, Paul is alluding back to perhaps Leviticus 19 or maybe even to Deuteronomy chapter 25. In both of these passages, it's for the court for the, uh, to, for the decision to be made and not for the high priest to make this this. Uh, decision. Uh, Paul does more than accuse Ananias of breaking the law, though. He calls him, he talks to him, and he says, you whitewashed wall. And what a whitewashed wall was then is not so much different from a whitewashed wall now. Uh, Oftentimes, we put whitewash on walls because we don't like what is on the wall. It's too much of a job to fix it. So we just put whitewash on it, and we still talk about whitewashing things. That means to, to, to just hide what is corrupt or uh, decaying or something bad in, under the whitewash. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here about Ananias. That's, that's what he's uh, saying to him here. Now, when Paul is confronted by other members of the Sanhedrin for insulting the high priest, uh, Paul makes this statement, Oh, I didn't know he was the high priest. And if you read commentators, there are innumerable explanations of how it could be that Paul didn't know who the high priest was. 
My take is that Paul's being sarcastic. He said, you whitewashed wall. I didn't know you were the high priest. The reason why I didn't know you the high priest, I could never expect that the high priest would behave like you're behaving right now. That I say I live with good conscience. That's not how a high priest functions. So I take it that Paul is, is being sarcastic. Even when Paul goes, when the, he's confronted and told that Exodus, uh, that, that it's wrong to, to, uh, uh, to speak evil or speak ill of the high priest, uh, Paul acknowledges that. But it seems to me this is all a part of Paul saying Ananias is a corrupt individual and He's a corrupt individual who would be leading this group right now. So that's my take, at least, on what we find here. Now, Luke next describes Paul's move to invoke his and the Pharisees' belief in the resurrection. Now, we don't know all that went on. Luke is not giving us a complete transcript of everything that happened in the meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, what Luke is doing is giving us what he judges to be important and necessary. So we don't know everything that Paul said at this time. We, we can't be sure of all of that. But I think when Paul makes the statement that there are two things that we need to look at, Paul says, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Now, one of these is a strategic move by Paul to further his defense. He knows the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees. He knows that the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. They do not believe in angels. They do not believe that God speaks to people and that the Pharisees embrace these kind of things. And he's aware of the, of the suspicions and the conflict that uh, went on in Judaism at that time. And so Paul takes advantage of this. And he makes a claim that he believes that the uh, um, Pharisees uh, will, will endorse. These are members of the court. And as a matter of fact, he succeeds, as we'll see as we go along. But I think we miss something if we just say Paul is a slicky boy. You know, he knows how to go into a defense and to uh, get everybody fighting against each other and forgetting about him. Uh, maybe Paul was slick, he knew what he was doing, he did get this argument going, and it seemed to have some effect. But my judgment is there's a lot more when the Apostle Paul says that he's on trial, he's been accused, he's brought here because he believes in the resurrection. Because the resurrection, as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, is a necessary part of understanding the Christian faith, of understanding the gospel. And it's my take that the author Luke also does that. Just think about what you see in the book of Acts. You go back to the second chapter of Acts. And when you go back to that second chapter and you find Peter's speech there, you find that he explains that Jesus was crucified. And then he says, and God raised him from the dead. And he then shows how the resurrection testifies to the efficacy of what Jesus did. And when we look at the way Luke records what Peter says, we find that after, in, in numbers of the messages about Peter that are contained in Acts, we find the same thing. After he heals the lame man in Acts 3, before he, when he's before the Sanhedrin in Acts 4, and after being delivered from jail in Acts 5, the fact of the resurrection is always a central part of what Peter is pronouncing. And that also holds true with the Apostle Paul. 
As he defends himself, he always reminds people that Jesus is the resurrected one who spoke to him. And so Paul's claim that he is on trial because of his belief in the resurrection is not simply a debating ploy. And if we think that, I think we miss something of what is going on here. It's a crucial part of his witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. This was not only true of Paul, but as we've seen, it's true of, of Peter as well. And it seems to me it's true of Luke. As we look at how he unfolds the book of Acts, the resurrection is a very central part of what Luke records for us. Now, as a debating ploy, uh, Paul's strategy works because the Pharisees call out, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now, the, the Pharisees pronounce Paul innocent of any charges against him about uh, desecrating the temple or the charges about his belief in the rex- resurrection. Uh, Paul's diversionary ploy works very well. In fact, it probably works a little bit too well because then this debate gets started and uh, uh, my take on what's going on here that the Sadducees are on this side and the Pharisees are on this side and Paul's someplace in the middle and there's one guy reaching out and saying, and there's another guy reaching out and saying something and going like this and the, the tribune looks at them and thinks, They're going to tear him apart. As a matter of fact, that's the way in which Luke records this. And so he says they're going to tear him to pieces. So he he sends some of his soldiers in, and they rescue Paul again. This is number three of the rescues we've seen of the Apostle Paul by the Romans. The Roman soldiers uh, go in, take Paul out of there, and they take him back uh, to the barracks. Now, Paul goes to sleep at night, and my as I think about this as I imagine, I imagine that when Paul went to bed that night that he may have been just a wee bit restless. Certainly, if you'd been through what the Apostle Paul had been through in the past few days, you would have some bumps and bruises on you. I mean, these people were beating him up. The Romans kept thinking that he was going to get badly injured or killed, and so they came to his rescue. So Paul's laying in his bed and probably has, as I say, lots of bruises on him, but I don't think the bruises are the worst thing. It seems to me that the Apostle Paul had to be asking himself some questions. He had to be wondering what was going on, what was going to happen to him next. And, uh, you know, he, he, he wondered about these kind of things. These thoughts, I'm almost certain, would have to, had to have troubled him. Don't, don't draw the conclusion that somehow Paul is f- afraid of what's going to happen to him. Uh, remember uh, uh, what he told his Christian friends back in Caesarea after Agabus had come down and given the prophecy by, by tying himself up and said that that was going to happen to the man who owned the, uh, the, the band that went around his waist. And, he, and Paul responds to them. He says, uh, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You see this back in Acts chapter 21. But even though Paul is ready to die for him, I, I think he must be asking himself those questions. I mean, how am I going to handle the Jews, people in Jerusalem? How am I going to, to acquit myself in front of the Romans? So what uh, will happen as a result of all of this I do to my, to my Christian brothers? Uh, he may have wondered, what will happen to, to the gift that I have brought, that I've been collecting from all these churches, the very reason for him making the trip to Jerusalem? All of these things should have been troubling him. And my, my suspicion is that... Uh, 
the Apostle Paul had one of those nights, you know, <clears throat> you know, back and forth as he tried to go to sleep and all of these things puzzling him. But in the midst of all those things puzzling him, what happens? Jesus stands beside him. Jesus comes to his bedside. That's what happens to him. And what does Jesus say to him? He says very clearly, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in, in Rome. I mean, if Paul was discouraged, as I'm imagining that he was, um, what could be more encouraging than to have the Savior stand beside him and said, well done? I mean, if we might paraphrase what uh, Jesus uh, told Paul, uh, that he had this solemnly and accurately uh, borne witness to the work of Jesus and the Heavenly Father, and the way in which the Heavenly Father, by raising Jesus from the dead, had affirmed the effectiveness of Jesus' work. Jesus not only encouraged Paul, but he also indicates what lay ahead for his faithful servant. Uh, Paul's going to Rome, and he was going to the center of the known world. And why is he going to Rome? He's going there to testify uh, in a similar manner. Uh, if I might paraphrase what Jesus said, you have done well in being my witness, Paul, here in Jerusalem, and because you have done well, I'm going to send you to Rome to witness to me there. I mean, if Paul was discouraged by the events that unfolded in Jerusalem, there were 40 um, Jewish men who hoped to make matters worse for the apostle. Uh, Luke tells us that 40 men conspired together to murder the apostle Paul, and they took an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed him. Now, we don't know who these 40 men are. We could speculate that they may have been men who were gathered in the temple who first attacked Paul, or they may have just been other people. We don't know who they are. But the ones that we do know who were involved in this conspiracy are, are, are the chief priests and the elders of Israel. Now, get this. Here is the chief justice and all the rest of the justices, and some people come into them and say, we want to murder somebody and we'd like your help. That's what we have in front of us. The chief priests and the elders are engaged in this plot, and their role in this plot is to ask the tribune to bring Paul back down so that they can inquire further about what was going on and find out more about the Apostle Paul. And they were going to do this. They were going to deceive the tribune. They were going to, they were going to engage in outright lying in order to facilitate murder. <laughs> What's going on here? These are the religious leaders of Israel. These are the people who know the Mosaic law. Thou shalt not kill. Let's murder Paul. You know, you shall not bear false witness. Let's lie to the tribune. That's the corruption that had gotten into the chief priests and into the elders at that time. So the religious leaders of the, of the Jewish nation are, are engaged in this plot. Now, Jesus, who had promised Paul that he would testify to him in Rome, is also at work in the midst of this evilness. Because what happens? As Jesus oversees the life of his apostle, as, as the providence of God works out, there's this young man who hears about this plot. Now, who is this young man? He's Paul's nephew. 
And Paul's nephew, what does he do? Well, what would a nephew do? He goes to Paul and he says, these guys are planning to kill you, Paul. They're going to murder you. And he gives them the details of that. And the apostle says to the centurion who's there guarding him, take this young man and take him to the tribune. And so he takes him to the tribune and says, this this young guy's got something to tell you. And the tribune takes him aside and he explains the plot of these 40 fellows who are not going to taste food or drink until they murder the apostle Paul. Now the tribune says, don't tell anybody about this, be on your way. But the tribune reacts in an appropriate manner. Just look in the text and see the uh, the group that he gets together to accompany uh, the Apostle Paul to to go uh, to, uh, to, to Caesarea. I mean, we don't know exactly... It's, it's hard to determine exactly how many people there are in, in, in this group. There are, um, if there are 200 or more, we, we, it, it's, uh, it's just not clear about exactly uh, which number we should follow. Uh, if Luke is including some in one group and not in the others. But it's, a, it's an elaborate group, and it's all these spearmen. These are, these are, are, are well-equipped Roman soldiers, and they're going to accompany Paul. And so we've got these hundreds of men that are going to go with Paul and take him to Caesarea. And their purpose is to protect Paul. Now, there are a lot of things that we could look at in here, but let's, let's move along because Claudius Lysias, that is the tribune, that is the commander uh, of the, uh, the barracks in, in, in Jerusalem, uh, writes a letter. And he writes a letter to Felix, uh, um, and Felix is the governor at that time, and he explains to him some of the things that have happened. And the, the letter pretty well tells what happened. Uh, uh, you know, uh, he's, a, he's a fellow who's under the authority. The Claudius Lysias is a fellow who's under the authority of Felix, and he probably wants his promotions in the military. And so he plays a little bit loose with the order of things. Uh, you know, he says that uh, he rescued Paul when he learned that he was a Roman citizen. Well, as a matter of fact, he learned that Paul was a Roman citizen when he was about to illegally flog him. Uh, So it was much later. But the basics are there about what had happened. And he sends this letter along with his soldiers, and they arrive in Caesarea. And when they get to Caesarea, Felix uh, uh, reads this letter. And after he reads this letter, he asks Paul where he's from. He says from Cilicia, uh, with the assumption that instead of sending him off to somebody higher, that he feels that he can take care of things. And he says, uh, when your accusers get here, then we'll follow along and take care of all these things. And we find Paul left, if you will, uh, in uh, uh, in the uh, Praetorium, uh, which is a castle that was built by, by uh, um, um, Herod and uh, the, governor, the Roman governor had taken it over. So that's where we find Paul in the end, and we'll pick up with Paul later on. But this story, as we look at it, it's, it's a strange one because it's got lots of things that you're interested in. You know, these were the kind of stories that you liked when you were in Sunday school. You know, there was intrigue, there was all kinds of things going on, that's kind of exciting kinds of things going on. But is Luke just simply giving us stories of intrigue so that we will be interested in it? And to a certain extent, it seems to me, he's trying to help us to see some things about the Apostle Paul. But in this particular situation, it seems to me one thing that we need to get from what Luke is writing is, is that Paul is innocent. 
There is nothing wrong. He has done nothing wrong. And we see uh, the way in which Luke records this, this incident, uh, that he brings this out in each section as his story unfolds. Uh, Paul makes the claim that he has lived his life with a good conscience, that he's been clear. He knows that he hasn't been breaking uh, the law of God. And uh, the contrary is set out for us very clearly in the way in which Ananias, the high priest, believes. When Paul is before the Sanhedrin, the Pharisaic, Pharisaic members uh, declare his innocent. Uh, read verse 9. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Uh, the tribune who observes the meeting of the Sanhedrin makes a similar claim. In the letter he writes to Felix, he says, I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Uh, I conclude that, that the Lord also agrees with this assessment of Paul and when he appears beside his bed and he commends him, just as you have testified to the facts about me here in Jerusalem, I want you to go to Rome and testify about those facts. The Apostle Paul has been doing the right thing all along. And Luke is just as clear that the Jews, then the leader of the Jews, are not innocent at all. They're evil. Uh, their antagonism against the Apostle Paul is an antagonism against his belief in Jesus. And Luke makes it clear in his description of Ananias' order to strike Paul. It's also apparent in the conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sadducee leaders are, are determined to punish Paul. Uh, the plot to kill Paul shows the hatred that the Jewish men and the leaders of the Sanhedrin in particular had against him. And as I, as I, as I portrayed this, I hope you could see the scandal that this brings out to us, of the evil that had come to be in the, in the corruption of the Jews of that era. As I look at this text, though, I mean, different things come in my mind. One is I, I, I feel sympathy for Paul. He means he's innocent. And yet he didn't shrink from faithfully declaring uh, the facts about Jesus. And he declared those facts uh, we've seen earlier to those who followed him. But uh, he also declared those facts uh, to those who, who hated the Apostle Paul. But as I feel sympathy for Paul and think about what's going on in him, I also feel a little bit of trepidation and a little bit of awe as well. Uh, uh, Paul knew this would happen to him. He knew what would happen to him as a result of his faithful witness. You may recall what the Apostle Paul said to the elders as they gathered together with him in Miletus, what he said to the Ephesian elders. Let me read to you from uh, chapter 20, verses uh, 20 through uh, 24. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, it's unlikely that we will be called upon to suffer in the way in which the Apostle Paul did. Uh, in fact, many of us here, uh, you like me, have uh, lived as Christians most of your life and have never had anybody beat you up for it. 
Nobody's ever slapped you in the mouth for being a Christian or talking about the Lord Jesus. Uh, nothing like that is, have we had to endure anything like the Apostle Paul had to. And, uh, and even though um, I find myself and others have not suffered as he did, I think we also have to see, though, that we are to testify, as the Apostle Paul did, testify to the gospel. And that's why I have a sense of, a sense of awe that what Paul did. If you're like I am, you could probably get up and testify about how frightening it is in a very pleasant place with lots of nice people to talk about the Lord Jesus. If you're like I am, one of the first things you notice is that your hands get cold because that's a sign of being scared. And, and even in pleasant places, I find that hard. And yet the Apostle Paul, he did this in the front of people who tried to beat him up. Uh, they, 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 they were murderous. And yet he faithfully testifies. And what Paul was called upon to do was not something that just belonged to him as an apostle. It belongs to all of us who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm awestricken by what the apostle does, but I also have a sense of trepidation because I know how often I have failed to bear witness, even as I said, in pleasant places, in places where nobody was going to hit me, no one's going to harm me. And I could be discouraged that by that. But I have to remember this, and I encourage you to remember this as well, that the Savior that Paul served, we call our Savior. And the one who stood beside Paul's bed and encouraged him is the one who promises to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Uh, I'm glad I could share with you the story of how I've thought through the years about how my experience at my dissertation defense paralleled the Apostle Paul, their differences, but it felt good to me to be able to share that story with you. I wish I could tell you that I've had similar experiences where I withstood open physical antagonism to the witness to the gospel of grace where I was able to tell sinners that the only way in which you can get to heaven is to have your sins forgiven because you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus. And when he died upon the cross, he bore your sins. And he was raised again from the dead as a testimony at least that what he did was effective. I wish I could tell you those stories. I can't. I can't tell you that. I have never suffered for telling anybody about Jesus and I tell you that with a bit of shame because I have been afraid oftentimes to tell people about Jesus and that's why I'm in awe of the Apostle Paul it's wonderful what Jesus did in his life but what I can tell you is that I rejoice that the Jesus of the Apostle Paul is my Jesus Paul found him worthy of giving his life to serve him. And I can only concur and hope that like the Apostle Paul, I will be found faithful. In a moment, we'll have a chance to sing the prayer. 
my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of thy name. I want to anticipate that God will answer that prayer in the midst of those of us who sing it tonight. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you that you are always faithful and that you call faithful servants like the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his example. We thank you for the way in which you worked in him. And we thank you, O oh Lord God in heaven, the way in which you confront us with our weakness. But in the midst of confronting us with our weaknesses, remind us of your sufficiency. Help us, O oh Lord Jesus, to remember that you died for us, that you have called us to tell others what a wonderful thing you have done for us. So encourage us that we might do that. And we make our plea to you in your name, O oh Lord Jesus. And we say together, Amen.